Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 5 as we get into God's Word together. You know, um, there was a family that I uh, grew to love uh, when we were back at our church in Wheaton, Illinois. Um, And their son, Tim, was in a Bible study that I taught. And Tim told me at one point he was very rebellious uh, against the Lord and against his parents. And, um, and Tim, I asked him what turned him around, and he said that um, he had been out drinking one night with friends and had not come back when he told his roommate that he would be back. And so his roommate was very late, woke up, saw that Tim wasn't there, called and woke up his parents. And his father, Joe, who was on my ordination committee, actually, went over to his house. He had a key to Tim's apartment, and he went over there. Excuse me. And um, Tim had just come in, and he was so tired, he just kind of fell on the floor. He was pretty wasted. And... um, he was awake. He, he, he knew it was his dad who came in because his dad was the only other one that had a key. And his dad, seeing him laying on the floor and safe, uh, went up and just gave him a gentle kiss on the head. And then left. Locked the door behind him. And Tim said that was what turned him around the unconditional love of his father. And man, we have the unconditional love of God available to us. And that's what these verses are about that that we're going to read. Um, Just a little bit of review. In Romans chapters 3 and 4, Paul shows us that salvation comes only on the basis of, of God's grace through our faith. That's how it works. Our our only part in being a Christian is to receive the gift. That's all we need to do. And so in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Paul quotes Genesis that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he takes us back to Abraham to show us that, that grace through faith has always been the way of salvation even before Abraham was circumcised, before he was officially Jewish, if you will. Uh, But in popular Judaism in the first century, and and even now, it's essentially no different from man-made religions. True faith has been replaced by a system of earning our righteousness by following the Old Testament law. That's what Jews today would say, to follow the traditions of the rabbis. As Paul does in many of his letters, he's building a case and he anticipates the arguments that would be raised against what he said. And he responds to these questions and to these objections uh, about how salvation is received. And and in the verses we're looking at this morning, that's what we're going to see. Does our salvation that started by God's divine power have to be protected then by our own power? And the short answer to that is no. 
And, and about this same issue, Paul wrote to the church in, in Ephesians, and this is on your outline, in Ephesians 1. And he tells them that he's praying that, that they, we as the church, if you will, understand that our security doesn't depend on our sinful efforts, but on, and this is a quote from that Ephesians passage, but the surpassing greatness of his power and on the strength of his might. That's what we depend on for the ongoing sense of security we have in our relationship with God. This is the cornerstone of it. Our, our hope is not in ourselves, but in our God, who it says in, in 2 Timothy 2, that it, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So before we get to chapter 5, look at, at chapter 4. What's the last word in chapter 4? Justification. That's right. So justification is how we get right with God. It means that, <clears throat> that God declares us righteous. And then he treats us that way. So let's read our passage. Uh, Romans 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith <clears throat> into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word to us. And so God says, okay, if you trust in my son and rely on him completely for your salvation, I'm going to treat you like my son Jesus, like I treat him. I'm going to treat you as my child. In, in heaven, <clears throat> none of us will be bragging about what we did to get to heaven because we had nothing to do with it. It's all God. We're going to all point to Jesus and, and we'll say, that's how we got here. It was through Jesus that we arrived here, based on what he did for me, not on what I do for myself, not on what I do to please God. We're all going to point to Jesus and say it's all him. It's what makes the gospel the good news. It's what makes it the gospel. Otherwise, it would be nothing but bad news because it would all depend on us. 
So if this were a courtroom scene, Paul's bringing us all on trial before the judge. And we're all guilty. And, and he makes the case by things, saying things like that we've seen back in Romans 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none who is righteous, not even one. And it's Moses who comes into the courtroom with the law, and he starts reading all the places where we've broken the law and where we continue to break the law. And then Satan comes in, and he knows he has dirt on us, and he just starts accusing us before the judge, and we stand there speechless. And the judge looks at us and says, is all this true? And all we can do is say, yes, your honor, it's true. We're guilty. And just when we think it's all over, that we're going to receive the death penalty, some of us have, have decided that, um, that that's what's going to happen. We're going we're gonna to die. But then our defense attorney approaches and says, approaches the bench, and he says, um, you know what? And this is nice because he's related to the judge. <laughs> he says, hey, Dad, we both know the death penalty has already been paid, and I paid it. So they don't have to. And then the judge looks at us, guilty as we are, and he says, okay, you're not guilty. You're free to go. That's what we have in Christ. We're justified. But this is just the beginning. In Romans 8.32, I know I'm skipping ahead, but in Romans 8.32, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how then shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So we see in these verses that we're looking at in Romans 5, some of the all things that God freely gives us. And so after talking about justification, <clears throat> chapter 4, that's where he ends. He says at the beginning of chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, in other words, because of this process, we've been declared not guilty before God, and we're going to be treated by God as not guilty. So here then are some of the benefits that we get because we are, are declared not guilty before God. The first benefit is that we have peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What this means is that our conflict with God has ended. This is not a feeling of peace. This is a fact of peace, whether you feel it or not. Think about this. An unsaved person is at war with God. We were all at war with God before we trusted Christ for our salvation. And they, they, they may hear this in a person who's unsaved and say, wait, I don't have anything against God. I'm not his enemy. Well, that's not the point. God has something against you. Remember back in Romans 1.18, therefore the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. You want to review the wrath of God, read Romans 1 through 3. And then he goes into all this detail for three chapters about this great roadblock to peace. It's a simple three-letter word, sin. That's the roadblock to peace. 
And unbelievers may, might say, well, I feel peaceful. Well, they might feel peaceful. They might feel it, but they are not at peace with God. The, the peace of an unbeliever is like someone uh, sipping wine on, uh, in a lounge chair on the Titanic. They may be enjoying it. They may, be, they may feel peaceful for a moment, but that ship is going down. And look at verse 10. We're skipping ahead a little bit, but look at verse 10. If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. That's the peace treaty. We're reconciled through the death of Jesus. How much more, verse 10 continues, have, have, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? It's the cross that makes peace with God for us. And so this is on your outline. Justification means that God declares you righteous and the result is an objective, legal peace in God's, judge, in, in God's courtroom. Isaiah 53 says it like this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Now, once we have this objective peace with God as believers, then we get this, we can get this feeling of, of peace. Uh, once we realize that there's no roadblock now between us and God. This is what Paul's talking about in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which I know many of you have memorized. It's a great verse to memorize about prayer. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And what happens? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so peace with God, that's what he's talking about in Romans 5.1, should create the peace of God that he's talking about in Philippians 4. You know, it's interesting that all of all the titles that Jesus bears in Scripture, he is called the Prince of what? That's right, the Prince of He could have been called the Prince of Hope or the Prince of Joy or the Prince of Love. He is, in fact, all of those things, but God makes it clear to us in Scripture that he is called the Prince of Peace because he came to make peace between us and God. The next benefit we have is that we have access to God. Look at verse two. Through whom also, in other words, through Christ, <clears throat> we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And the word access is used of someone who's with someone else and they take them to a third person to, to give them access that maybe that person doesn't have otherwise. So maybe you know someone that, that I don't know and you want me to meet them, you want, me, you want to give me access so you take me and introduce me to your friend. And part of that in the Greek, the idea is that it's, it's appropriate in every way, like the way we're dressed. You want to make sure that we're dressed appropriately to meet the person that you're going to take me to meet. And I think this is a perfect description of the way we are before the Father, because all of because we're not dressed well without Christ. 
All of our righteousnesses, it says in Isaiah 64, are like filthy rags. And so we're not dressed right. Jesus clothes us with his righteousness. That's what we've been learning about in Romans. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's access. That's perfect access. And that was radical, and here's why it was so radical. In paganism and in Judaism, uh, access to God was unheard of. The Greek gods were angry. They were unpredictable. They weren't gods that you wanted to be near. You just wanted to be sure not to make them mad. Uh, You might bring an offering, but you want to stay as far away from them as you possibly could. It was the same with Jews. A Jew could not go in to the Holy of Holies in the temple without the fear of death. The Gentiles could hang out in the temple court area. Uh, The women could go a little closer, Jewish women. Uh, They could go further than the Gentiles, but still not as close to God as others. Uh, They could only go to a certain point. Jewish men, the same way. They could go closer than the women, but not as close as the priest. A priest could go into the holy place, but not into the holy of holies. Only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, and that only once a year. And he did it briefly and carefully. And tradition has it that they tied a rope around his ankle because if anyone would have to go in and pull him out, if he died for some reason, they would die because that was what was happened if anybody other than the high priest. And so the high priest wore bells on his clothing. So if the bells stopped ringing, they were like, oh no, he's died. We got to pull him out. So they'd pull him out by the rope tied around his ankle. So access to God wasn't something that, that was just, that, that happened for a Jew or for a pagan. So when Christ died on the cross, as a result, it says in Matthew 27, behold, the veil of the temple was torn from, top, from the top to the bottom. The curtain that separated the holy one from the holy of holies, from the holy place, it says that it was torn from top to bottom. Why? Because God ripped the veil. And by that, he's symbolizing that now there's no separation. Everybody who wants can get close to God. You're as close to God as you, as, as you want to be. If you want to be closer to God, you can grow closer to God. And there, there are disciplines of grace that have nothing to do with earning our salvation, but they, they put us in a place where, we can, we, where, where God can get our attention, so to speak, by reading the word regularly, memorizing the word. But by spending time alone with God in prayer, those are the fundamental disciplines, fellowship, what we're doing this morning, fellowshipping with each other, worshiping together corporately. This is what Paul wrote about in Ephesians 2 when he wrote this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's given us full access to the Father. And we can repeat, we can, and he says, you know what? You can even have repeat visits. Come as often as you want. Keep coming back every day, in fact. Come back multiple times a day into the presence of the Father. 
because Jesus has given us access by his death. What does the writer to the Hebrews say in Hebrews 4.16? You've got this on your outline. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can come boldly before the Father because of, by grace. That's, the, that's how we've been made, a son or a daughter of the king. And the word stand in Hebrews 4.16, on the outline you've got it, means that even though we look dirty, even though we are smelly, spiritually speaking, we can come before the Father and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, there's a, an account out of the Middle East of, um, of, from the Bedouin community. They're nomadic. They move around and live in tents. And one day there were two young Bedouins who were in a fight. And one of them killed the other. And the Bedouins had a strict rule that was uh, from the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so this young man ran because he knew that if they caught him, he would be killed. Well, the Bedouins also have a a very strong tradition that if anybody is in trouble, they can go and ask anyone else, an older Bedouin, uh, for protection, and they would protect them in their tent, and nobody could touch them. And so this young boy ran to an older Bedouin that he knew, and he said, can I have protection? They're after me. I've done something wrong. And he said, yes, I will protect you. I pledge to protect you. And so they found him in this tent, and this man came out, this older man, and and said, we know that you're protecting this young boy, and he's done something terrible. He's murdered someone, so you need to give him to us. He needs to die. And the father of this this older man, this older man said, "Uh, you know what, I I told him I would protect him. I'm going to protect him. And then they told him it was your son he killed. And this old man fell to the ground and and was emotional, as you can imagine, and wept. And after a little bit, he got up, and what he said was this. He said, then this boy shall become my son, and everything I have will one day be his. That's what God's done for us. He's adopted us as his children. He's bought us out of slavery and given us this full access to him. And then the next benefit we have is a look ahead at our future. In the second part of verse 2, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Our salvation is anchored in the past because Jesus has made peace with God for us. And it's anchored in the present because we have access to the community of God, to to the fellowship with God continually. And it's anchored in the future because we have a promise that will lead us to heaven. That we will be, that we'll be in God's presence forever. That's the promise. And this is a reference of heaven because this is where God's glory is fully on display. We'll see the glory of God. And this is interesting because Moses, think about this, Moses had seen God in the burning bush. Moses had seen the Red Sea part so he could cross it. Moses had, had, had seen God provide manna for them, fall from heaven so they could eat it. I, I love what manna is in the Hebrew. Manna means, what is it? <laughs> what is it? What is it? It's manna. Eat it. And he saw God bring water out of a rock for them to drink. 
And you would think Moses would be happy with any of those. But Moses asks God and says, uh, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory or you'll die. But one day Moses' prayer will be answered because we will all see God's glory. We don't even have to wear sunglasses because we will have a glorified body. That's what it says. That's what John writes in 1 John chapter 3. Verse 2, he says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, look at that, listen to this, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will have a glorified body like Jesus. So we have the, the certainty that God will come through and give us new and glorified bodies. That's our future. Another benefit is that, and this is next on your outline, that we have purpose in our pain and our suffering. We have purpose in our pain and our suffering. Verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. So we have peace with God and we have access to God's presence. We have glory in the future. But how about in between now and then? What about all the suffering we go through, all the pain, all the confusing times, all the heartache that suffering brings that we all go through? Well, it's a promise that Jesus gave us in John 16. In this world, you will have tribulation. Shouldn't be a surprise for us. Justification is not an escape from our problems. It's more like a guarantee that more problems will come but that they have a purpose. For an unbeliever, this life is all they have, and so they go through pain and hard times, and as far as they're concerned, they lose everything. It, it's different for the believer. They're able to, we are able to make it through trials because no matter how dark the night gets, we know that morning is coming. That, 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 that there's purpose in the trials because like it says, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. That's why we need to be careful when we say, why does God let things happen to good people? I'm a good person. Why does God let this happen to me? Well, first of all, that assumes you're good and we've already seen from Romans 3 that no one is good, not even one. And we have to be careful that what we call bad isn't really good. Because that's what God says here. I think of Joseph and all that he went through and the persecution and the suffering from his own brothers, his own families. And what does he say to him? These wonderful words to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Yeah, and as a result, many people were saved. You know, Samuel Rutherford is a Scottish pastor. And he said something, and I love this about trials that we go through. He wrote this, why should I be frightened and surprised by the plow of the Lord that makes deep furrows in my soul? I know he is not some arbitrary, irrational farmer. His purpose is to plant something there that will yield a great harvest. That's what God's doing in our lives. Making those furrows in our soul that hurt so much 
because he wants to plant seeds there that, that will grow something amazing for the glory of God. And that leads to the second point on the outline, really what this whole part is about, this whole section, and that is the love of God. God's love is what motivates our justification. And the first thing we need to understand about his love is that it is, in, on your outline, poured into our hearts. Verse five, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This is the first time in Romans that the word love has been used. Um, Paul has been speaking about the wrath of God and the grace of God, and now he introduces us to the love of God. And this is what happens when we come to faith in Jesus. God's love is poured out in our hearts. And it's a love that's an agape love that will love people in spite of who they are, what they've done. It's a godly, godlike love that's poured into our hearts. And then I want to skip just for a second to the second use of the word love in Romans, and that's in verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul introduces love, and then what does he do? He points us to the cross, what we've sung about. He points us to the cross because that is is where we see that's the greatest act of love. He says, look at the cross. I've demonstrated love for you. And so the truth of the gospel is that God loves us, broken and imperfect as we are. And this is part of God's character that we read about in 1 John chapter 4 where it says God is love. And here's Paul discussing justification by faith, and now he gives us the motive for it, and it's love. And the proof of love is always in the gift. What is love willing to give? You know, a verse that's as, not as well known as John 3.16, which we all know well, I think, but it's also very important. It's Galatians 2.20. And it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's love. You know, in a book entitled uh, Marriage Takes More Than Love by Jack and Carol Mayhall, Uh, They talk about love meaning sacrifice. They they just kind of break down. They say, here's what love really means. And they say, love is about sacrifice. And they say in the book, if your feelings for your spouse have disappeared, then love is willing to make a sacrifice. It's never passive. It's always willing to act. And for love to grow, say the Mayhalls in this book, love has to invest time. It has to invest energy so that the relationship doesn't deteriorate into something formal. And so marriage takes more than love. It takes sacrifice. It takes time. It takes a willingness to act. And all those we see in God. God gave his very best when he gave us his son. And Mark writes that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for us, for many. And so the proof of God's love is the gift that was given. It was a sacrificial gift. And we see that God's love is also, and this is the next one on your outline, is demonstrated through Christ's death. 
The gift of God was unconditional because it says in verse 6, when we were still powerless, powerless, we didn't earn anything. While we were still sinners, it says in verse 8. In other words, we had no ability to improve our condition on our own. We couldn't do it on our own. We were spiritually dead. Not just spiritually sick, we were spiritually dead. Paul has been saying this in Romans, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He loves us. He loves us no matter what we're at. He loves the person who keeps running from him. He, he loves the, the prostitute who's looking for love in all the, the wrong places. He loves the, the drug user. He loves the drug dealer. He loves the businessman who cheats on his taxes. He doesn't want people to, to act like that, but he loves them. I, 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 I love the passage in Mark where uh, Jesus is interacting with the rich young ruler. And it says at the end of that little uh, story of that, that account, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. He loved him. He, he loves you. No matter what is keeping you from, from going all in with God, he loves you. In verse 6, it says, you see, at just the right time, God sent his son at just the right time to die for us. In Galatians 4, it says the same thing. But when the, the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You know, there's a great account of a man from Australia whose name was James Harrison. Uh, you can look this up in Wikipedia. It, it says this in Wikipedia, that he was known as the man with the golden arm because his blood had a very unusual plasma composition that contained a cure for a disease called the rhesus disease. Rhesus disease that affects children in the womb. And then once they're born, they come to find out that, that, that they're infected. There was this huge outbreak apparently in Australia. And so James Harrison donated his blood a total of 1,173 times. Every two or three weeks for 60 years years. Um, and in doing so, it's estimated that he saved the lives of over two and a half million children. James Harrison donated his blood at just the right time. And God sent his son to save us hopeless and helpless and powerless at just the right time. Paul here is comparing a divine love to human love to show us how the infinite difference between the two, the way people love one another and the way God loves us. And so in verse six, he says, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the divine way. And here's the comparison with human love. Verse seven, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. And then verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, God took us in in order to make us into his best, to make us ultimately like his son Jesus. That's true love. That's what we know about our, uh, about our creator in heaven. He did all this because 
he knows we're worth it. He thought we were worth it. And when we put our confidence in him alone for our salvation, then true love of God and his joy, we, we get to know like we never thought we could. Like we never thought was even possible. And so we look at God's provision and we see that by his love, and this is the next one on your outline, that we're saved from God's wrath. Verse nine, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more? And we see that again, it's God's provision. It's like Paul keeps saying this in this passage, but wait, there's more. There's so much more. It's like the ultimate ad on TV, but wait, there's more. And Paul keeps saying that. He uses that phrase, how much more, a dozen times in his writings and two times right here. Look again at verse nine. Since we have now been justified by his, his, his blood, but wait, there's more. Shall we be saved? How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? It's like Paul says, here's an example, and then here's an even greater example. And these two verses are like Jesus saved us from, from God's wrath, and Jesus saves us from, uh, saves us from ruin right now. And if you want to go back and, and, uh, and again review all this, this is where it leads up to. And if you're trusting Christ alone for your salvation, you don't have to worry about God's wrath. But God's wrath will fall on those who don't believe. John 3.36 says it. You've got it on your outline. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. And so all the people in the world can be divided into two groups, those who believe in the Son and those who reject the Son. And those who believe in the Son will not see the wrath of God, and those who reject the Son will see the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul writes this, that we are waiting for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. We're rescued from that wrath. Back in 2004 in Iraq, there was a, a Marine by the name of Jason Dunham who was part of a military police group who were stopping cars as they went through a certain checkpoint, inspecting them for explosives, guns. He saw a Toyota Land Cruiser approaching and the driver uh, driving a little bit erratic and he could see guns in the back seat as the car got closer. And um, the man stopped the car, the driver, and started running. He didn't get very far when Dunham and the other military police stopped him. But he was a terrorist, and he had a grenade, and he pulled the pin, and he dropped it. And Dunham threw his helmet on, onto the grenade and then hurled his body on top of the helmet. And he died. But the other soldiers were saved. The terrorist was saved but Dunham sacrificed his life. And in essence, Jesus, Jesus absorbed the blast of God's wrath after you and I pulled the pin. And so having absorbed the blast of God's wrath, his wrath is no longer an issue for those of us who believe in Jesus. Verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more? Wait, there's more. Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? 
Not only does his death save us from God's wrath, his death saves us from our ruin because we live an abundant life here and we live an eternal life with God forever. And then the next thing, the love of God leads us to reconciliation in verses 10 and 11. And here's where it leads us. It's, it's how can we ever be insecure in our status as God's children? Verse 11, not only is this so, but also we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In other words, God always finishes what he starts. In Philippians 1.6, it says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so our salvation depends on God's nature, not on ours. I, 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 I titled this verse, the, of this, these verses, The Amazing Love of God, but I could have entitled them The Joy of the Lord. Because when you are living these things out, the result is joy. It's no wonder that the angel over Bethlehem came and announced to them, uh, the, the, uh, the shepherds on that first day, I bring you good tidings of great joy. That's what he's given us. And as the Lord makes us teachable and makes us humble and grateful, we find this joy in our lives that carries us above our circumstances. And this is a joy that comes from understanding the benefits and meditating on the amazing love of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you take us as we are while we were your enemies in order to turn us into the best versions of ourselves. You redeemed us and made us the object of your love. You know us at our best. You know us at our worst. But because of what Jesus did in taking the blow for us, we thank you for saving us from future wrath. We thank you for providing everything we need in Jesus. And if you're here today, if you're with us, uh, and you've never said yes to the Savior on a personal level, it's not about going to church, but about believing that you're a sinner. You can pray right now, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Please save me from my sins, from your wrath. Save me from myself. I've fallen so short of your perfection. Forgive me, Lord. Thank you for shedding your blood for me on the cross. I'm ready to receive and enjoy your great love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now to him who is able to strengthen you in the faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Amen. So be it.